Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. So today, uh, we're going to be behavior theories and behavior patterns. Um, so you might ask why would we talk about innate behavior. Oh, by the way, my son's here because it's a PD day. It's not like he wants to take this class. He's not an idiot. Um, even my daughter won't take this class, and she's a psych major. So why would we? Where, why talk about innate behavior when we're talking about learning? Um, learning often involves innate behavior. You know, you think about Pavlov and the uh, conditioned reflex of um, salivating, that's, that's a, when you talk about a conditioned, an unconditioned stimulus, unconditioned response, those are innate behavior patterns, right? So we should have an idea <clears throat> about that. A lot of the rules are similar in that there may be, for example, a stimulus that causes an innate behavior pattern to happen. We'll talk a little bit about that today. And if there is, a stimulus that causes an innate behavior pattern to happen. Sometimes, uh, with repeated stimulation, you'll get less of that repeat, that, that uh, innate behavior pattern. Okay, so you get sort of change over time, even though it's not learning per se. It's, that would be learning about that stimulus, of course. It also gives us some perspective it's that not all behavior is learned. I think. Again, I don't think everybody, I don't think anybody in the room probably accepts the idea that all behavior is learned over all. We all start out as blank slates and various other crazy ideas. But it certainly is the case, <clears throat> excuse me, that there is behavior we think. It's, it's nice to show that sometimes there's things that very complicated stuff that you might think would be learned that just isn't, that, that is just innate. I don't really like the word innate very much, but. Because um, it sort of implies a hardwired kind of unchangeable, and none of that's really true. But unlearned is as good as anything. So some simple examples. So questions with that? Okay. So some, a very simple example here is thermoregulation. Um, because animals thermoregulate, they keep their body temperatures at a Stable temperature, right? Um, there's a set point. No, so for us, it's like what 37.1 degrees Celsius. Other animals is different, warmer, colder, doesn't matter. The variable that's being controlled then is, is temperature. This is fed back, so that the variable's red. It's fed back into the set point, and then you see what, what's the difference. Well, if you're too cool, then it's sent out, we're calling these effectors. Basically, we can think of these as, could be motor neurons, but we don't really think of it that technically. It's more like different systems or different, approach, different ways to, say, lose heat. So dilation of blood vessels, sweating, or panting. So if you're too warm, right? Like yesterday, where it was 25, and today it's 11. Ridiculous. Not that I think it should ever be 25 in late September, but it beats the crap out of 11 and raining. Only thing where 5 and raining or 4 is the worst thing in the world. I'd rather it was 10 degrees colder than snow. On the other hand, we want to gain heat, that's a constriction or shivering. 
Most people don't realize that when you shiver, in fact, the idea is that you're moving a little bit that's causing you to warm up. Now, it's interesting, there are behavioral things that can happen here, too. Uh, baby rabbits uh, can't get fevers. You think, well, that's probably good. Actually, no, fevers are good. Probably when you were young and you got a fever, your mom would load you up full of Tylenol or aspirin or something like that, try to beat the fever. And in fact, the best thing to do is have the fever, unless it's getting really dangerously high. And it's a lot, people often think that dangerously high might mean like a 38, 39. And actually, it's not really true, especially for younger kids. They can deal with really high, intense fevers. It's not fun, but actually the idea here is to bring your body temperature up to, to kill the virus or kill the bacteria. That's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a defense mechanism. So, the thing is, and if you ever had a, been around a baby, sometimes it's funny, they don't thermoregulate very well. I remember when he was little and ha- uh, he was like, I don't know, three weeks old and he had a little tiny something, like a little sniffles or something. And half of them had a fever, the left half. And the right side was fine. And you, you see that a lot in, 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 I remember Maddie, same thing. It's very strange. And then eventually your whole system works. Victoria, you look like very confused by that and kind of creeped out by it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little weird. It is weird the first time. When you get the second kid, you figure you can't break them, so it's a lot different. <laughs> the first one, you, you listen to hear if they're breathing all the time. You do that with your first kid. You really do, too, and you all will. Or if you haven't already, if you don't have kids. Second kid, it's like, yeah, he's probably breathing. And if he's not, there's not really a whole lot I can do. <laughs> you know? But it's weird. So baby rabbits actually can't have fevers. They don't have... They're not developed enough yet. So what they do is they have what's called a behavioral fever. So what they'll do is they'll climb underneath their mom to get really, really warm. And there's a great science paper on this where they inject baby rabbits with influenza. So they give them the flu. Okay? And then the other ones they inject just with saline. And the ones that are injected with saline, and they're just, you know, uh, sitting around doing nothing. The ones that are injected with the Influenza, about 12 hours later, they, they, there's, there's a heat lamp. There's one lamp that has heat and one lamp that doesn't give off heat, but it's the same color. It's a good, good experiment. And the baby rabbits go over and they hang out under the heat lamp. And they've never learned that. They just have, that's something that's basically an innate behavior pattern. It's for thermoregulation, but it's behavioral. Yeah, I guess shivering is behavior, but it's not really complicated or interesting behavior. It's a pretty fascinating stuff. This is really... Quite simple. Um, you can think of complicated things like uh, you're being hungry and then going out and foraging. Right? That's pretty complicated behavior. So you would be going out to a foraging system to warm you, to, 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 not warm you up, but to, to, to go get yourself some food. Pretty simple systems, though. Okay. So basically, we're talking about, in a lot of these cases, reflexes. They're stereotypic in, uh, in response and to some stimulus. They're always the same way to some stimulus. Usually, it's a pretty simple system of a sensory neuron to an interneuron. <coughs> sorry, sensory neurons to interneurons to motor neurons. Interneurons are just these sensory neurons. Obviously, what they are, they receive information. Motor neurons make behavior happen. Interneurons, basically, what we're talking about here is integrating information. Okay. So some very complex behavior can come out of such simple connections. And in relatively simple animals. 
You know what's in the animals, right? So you can get behavior that looks exceedingly complicated. Oh, well, it is exceedingly complicated. It just is controlled very simply. Which one? Are you still in the videos? Are you watching the... You're making a movie. Okay. Taking fun? Yeah. Doing okay? Okay. So you've all heard me talk about this. Most of you have, of course, the moth and the bat. Um, this is a nuptoid moth. It has an ear on its... Well, not one ear. It's got one ear on each side. On each side of the thorax. Okay? It's very similar to our ear. In... Not so much in, 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 in structure, though he vaguely, well, that is too bright. Is there a way to control that? Because he can't really see them. Or can you see that? Because I, I, my eyes. Can you see that diagram? Hmm. It's faded, eh? Hmm. I don't think this is helping at all. Yeah, this, this, is, this is just useless. See, it looks great here. So basically, you get these air sacs here in a tympanum, a tympanic membrane. Okay. So in, in essence, it's, it's an eardrum. It works. It's the same principle as our ear, right? Um, and these two neurons that hook up to the tympanum, tympanic membrane. So you've got, and I'll draw it all well. That on the side of the moth, you've got a. a Basically, an eardrum. And then you've got connections to two neurons A1 and A2. Okay? So you have two neurons. I'm still recording. I wonder, wonder if you can. Oh, it's telling me to replace the battery, though.
Okay. So, these two neurons are, um, they're not frequency sensitive, but they don't respond at all to low frequencies. And by low frequencies, I mean, very, I mean really high, actually. Uh, 112,000 hertz. We don't hear, our, our threshold to hearing is around 20 hertz. The highest sounds we can hear, and I don't think anybody in this room can hear that high, is 20,000 hertz. You live in Western industrialized society. That way you often wear headphones. So your high-end hearing is gone. Right? Me, I'm, I mean, I'm almost 50. It's the point now where probably I can't hear past 14,000. Right? There's not a whole lot of sounds that are important to me that are that high, so I don't really care. Right? So they're hearing at 110, 112,000 hertz, which is right around where bats send out sonar. Okay? So it's right around where bats send out sonar. So you'll see how this is hooked up, that you have the ear, and then it's hooked up almost directly to a muscle. The ear's hooked up directly to a muscle. Okay? In the moth. Okay? So what happens is, again, this is, this is so useful when you can see it. Um, it's hard to tell here. But this is the A1 response, this is the A2 response, and you really, unfortunately, can't see where the responses are. So if you have the notes in front of you, you can see it, that the louder the sound, the more A1 fires. A2 doesn't fire at all unless there's really, there's a really loud sound. Now, what that means is that there's more firing with a closer bat, right? That's all that means. The closer the bat is, the more the fire. Okay? And A2 is going to fire with really loud sounds, which means the bat must be very, very, very close. Does that make sense? So you see what that, that, that two neuron here is doing? It's actually detecting distance from a, from a predator. Itself, or are you watching the trailer? The trailer. Yeah, of course, the movie's there. Okay, questions. A lot of you heard me talk about this before. If you take any more courses with me, you'll hear me hear it again because it's the greatest thing ever. The only time we don't talk about this in my any course I teach is statistics or contemporary theory and psychology. Everything else, this comes up because I think it's cool. Because it is cool. So basically now what's happening, and this diagram does a nice, nice job explaining it, but it works. What are you doing? All right. Fine. Don't advance. Let's see if I care. Um, so A1, well, now it's going to just do it like crazy. Uh, we'll go back. Okay. Okay. So what happens is the moth, the bat, the moth is hearing a bat over here flaps the wing faster because it's hooked up to the wing and then it turns until they're both at the same 
to, to the sound is the same loudness on both sides, which means it's directly 180 kilometers, kilometers, meters, uh, not meters, degrees away, and it flies away. So this is pretty cool, because what this two neuron here is doing is vector math. Right? Something that you guys all probably learned in high school and most you had trouble with. Right? Vector math maps. This two neuron here is doing it on its own thing. Now, the moth, of course, isn't aware of this. But aware of it. So, what's the A2 one do? It turns off all inhibition in the moth nervous system. Most of your, a lot, and I shouldn't say most, a lot of what's happening, I mean, your nervous system is doing one of two things inhibition or excitation. You or a moth, doesn't matter which. Excitation more likely to fire, inhibition less likely to fire. It's all it is. And in this case, making it more like, uh, just turning off all that inhibition, now what happens is, just like you know how when you, when you pull off a leg with daddy, daddy long legs, it moves. Because that's what boys do. I don't know if you know that. That's what little boys do. They, they just pull. That's it's what you do. Girls do it sometimes. All boys do it. That's the like chicken, the chicken with its head cut off and it still runs around. There's still nerve, there's still neurons in there that fire, which makes the thing move. Same idea. So now that that just the moth just goes crazy and flapping its wings every which way, last second evasive maneuvers. And of course that's totally unpredictable. That's the beautiful thing. So now that the, the bat can't predict what the moth is going to do. Right? There's also another neuron B, by the way, that detects, this is in a feedback loop, it detects if the, if, if the moth's wings are above or below. Because when they're below, it's going to cover the ear above, and now what's going to happen, and now it can do it in 3D space, is it above it or below it. You could build this from parts you would get at Radio Shack, right? I mean, boy, and I have an electronics kit. I bet we could sit down with a soldering iron to make this thing. Well, I don't know if we could, but a man could. The Seinfeld line, nobody? Okay. It's pretty amazing. And it's very complicated behavior, but it's not very cognitive behavior, and it doesn't have to be learned. Moths are built this way. Moths are built this way. By the way, it's not just me that thinks this is cool. There's a little graph of how many times that paper gets cited. <laughs> it's, it's, it's still cited. All, it's from the 1950s, and it still gets cited every year. It's pretty neat. It's pretty neat. Okay. So that's a pretty complicated looking thing that isn't learned. Right? It's not learned. So, what's another kind of behavioral sequence? It's a fixed action pattern. A fixed action pattern. Now, if you took um, uh, animal behavior with me, we talked about this. Uh, basically, this animal behavior, the study of ethology, fixed action patterns are patterns that are, are behavioral sequences that every member of a species does. Okay? Everybody does this. And there's no prior learning necessary. Jerry Hogan is all, likes to use the term instead of innate, pre-functional. So you don't have to have the outcome for this behavior sequence to show up. And it's a rigid sequence. 
It's a rigid sequence of behavior, okay? Here's an example, um, dust bathing in Burmese red jungle fowl. Burmese red jungle fowl are the uh, ancestors of our domestic chicken. Okay. The function of this behavior is to clean out oil from the feathers um, and parasites. Some birds bathe in water. In fact, most of us think of little bird baths, right? So you buy that painted you tire, you put it on your lawn, and you think you're classy. So, and the little songbirds come, and they, they, they jump around in the water, and they actually are bathing. Like It's not like they're just having a good time. They're, they're cleaning up. And what they're trying to do in this case is clean out, just like they're doing with dust, is to clean out oil and parasites from their feathers. Other birds that are around um, parts of the world where there's not, like their niche where they evolved, is not so much, doesn't have standing water around so much. Like ponds, not really, yeah, so not like just stagnant water. That's not going to help at all. It's going to bring more parasites. So you want like little ponds and things like that? Um, they bathe in dust. So what happens is you end up getting, and then this would actually work in a way with a person, right? I wouldn't do it very often, but you would get dirt on you and then you'd rub it off. Same way you can, same way sandblasting works, right? Got to realize we, had, we didn't use soap until when was soap invented? Like 500 AD. Before that, like the Romans, you know how the Romans bathed? They went into water, and then you got olive oil rubbed on you, and then it was scraped off with a dull knife because it scrapes off dead skin and gross stuff. And then you go back in the water, rinse off, and you're fine. Romans were weird, but they invented a lot of cool stuff. Remember, the Romans also used to bleach togas with human urine. So, bathing with olive oil doesn't sound as bad, does it, suddenly? So, all they're doing is getting... This is an important set of behavior, because if you don't do this, you're going to end up with parasites. Well, all birds have parasites. In their feathers, all well birds. You don't want very many of them, though, because that's going to affect... Well, it's your health, right? Okay. So I got some pictures. So the animal starts up by fluffing up some dust. This is what this uh, rooster is doing. It's a rooster, yeah, I think so. What they do is they sort of start um, shaking around, and dust starts to, a little cloud of dust comes up. See, because the idea, they're not going to roll around in this dust. They're going to make a cloud of dust show up, okay? And then they're going to sort of move around in it. Right? They're not going to get dirty. It's not the idea. So you can do that with your feet, your chicken, but you got to get dust up here too. So they start doing uh, the bill scratch on the ground, which again starts to bring dust up. Okay.
so what happens is they build, they build up kind of a little cloud of dust and they start doing various specific behaviors, including what's called the vertical wing shakes. They start shaking their wings up and down. Again, trying to get dust everywhere all over themselves. And then they end up at the very end, and this, this takes about half an hour, by the way. This isn't screwing around. This takes a long time to do. And once they start, they don't stop. You can't stop them. Well, you can. You just cut their head off. They stop right away. They'll hold it down. They'll stop. Chickens can be mean. Roosters, I'll tell you something. Um, we had these in our lab at U of T. Uh, it wasn't our lab, but it was the lab next door. So we heard the chickens all the time. And the guys that cleaned up the chicken coops, the first thing you'd have to do, there'd be one rooster, like 30 hens, right? The first thing you had to do is corner the rooster. Because if you went near the hens that were sort of his, he wasn't very happy. And they're tough. They're, they're mean. And they'll attack. Yeah. They'll jump and go at you with their talons. They're a little, little mean. I wouldn't want to hold down a rooster doing this. You'd get hurt. Females aren't so scary, but the males are pretty, pretty tough. But yeah, once you start, once they start, they don't stop. And this is all true of all fixed action patterns. So it's actually exceedingly complicated behavior, and sadly, again, this isn't going to show up very well. In fact, there you go. It's not bad. Okay. So there's a dust bathing system that has various subsystems, including and then various sub behaviors like uh, we got the bill shake, uh, scratching, the vertical wing shake is here, uh, and then we've got a stimulus, an external stimulus, and that's dust. So it's actually a pretty complicated set of behaviors. Um, Verstegard, Hogan, and Kreut in 1990 found that jungle fowl don't need dust to dust bathe. Now, that sounds pretty strange. They'll air bathe. If you take the animals and raise them without dust ever, the dust bathing system develops, but it doesn't need dust. So, what uh, Verstegard, uh, Hogan, and Croyd did is they took chickens and they raised them from, from being young without dust. One group without dust and one group with dust. And they're using sawdust in this case. In the lab, they get the sawdust. No, they'll, they'll happily dust bathe in sawdust um, and keep themselves clean. So what happens is you get this one group with, one group without. The group without, boom. Oh, it'll dust bathe if you give it dust. Sure. But it'll also dust bathe, not dust bathe, or wire mesh bathe, because they're, they're just in wire mesh cages. Every day, around noon, which is when they do it, it'll do this every day around noon, even if there's no dust. On the other hand, the birds that had dust in their, their development, they won't, if there's no dust, they're like, well, I can't. It'd be like you going into a, into a shower going, well, there's no water. I don't think this is going to solve anything. So they don't. Then they eventually, then what will happen is, when you give them, let's say after four or five days, and of course they haven't had a a dust bath in a long time, then you present it to them, they have extra long ones, just like you would do if you hadn't had a bath in four days. 
But the ones that have never had, that's why it's a dotted line here, because this is based on their experience, their previous experience, that they have that dust. And this happens, as I said, every day around noon for adults, for juveniles and, and, and chicks, even 14 days post-hatch is already rhythmic. It happens at noon and for babies, noon and 4 p.m. Pretty amazing. So this is uh, Frances uh, Van Boxel. That was her master's thesis, actually. So Jerry Hogan, Frances Van Boxel, uh, found that dust bathing was rhythmic at 14 days post-hatch. See these little chicks, which are the cutest things in the world. We have these little... And then have you ever seen a juvenile chicken? It's the least cute animal you've ever seen in your life. It's the most butt-ugly thing. It's horrible looking. They may look like chickens, and they're fine. But a juvenile chicken, about like a, a month old, is an ugly, ugly... Anybody ever seen an animal like that? Yeah, they're ugly, aren't they? Yeah. They're horrible looking. They look like they're not finished yet. Right? So they got these long necks, and they got their, their, their body, like the, where the, the breast sort of part and all that, is shaped kind of like an adult, but not as built up yet. But they got these long necks and great big looking eyes. They kind of look like miniature ostriches. Like they're really ugly looking. When you see them, then that's when you can say, yeah, birds or dinosaurs. You can really sort of see it with the juveniles for some reason. God, they're ugly. Then they get, just look, then they start to look delicious. Mm. Yeah, yeah so everything works out in the end. Ethology is the study of animal behavior. Usually, sort of, quote, in a behavior pattern, this is pretty cool. Um, you can get a sequence of fixed action patterns called a reaction chain. So you put more than one uh, together with another. You can tell if the reaction, if it's a reaction chain or not, by the fact that you, you can stop the animal. So if you distract the animal, will it stop doing one of the behaviors? Like if you take a gull, a herring gull, a lot of this work was done in the, in the 1960s. You take a herring gull and you take one of its eggs and you put it outside of the nest, it goes and retrieves the egg. And they just do this automatically. And you would, that makes a lot of sense. You, if you were, you can see the evolutionary advantage in rescuing your own eggs, obviously. The interesting thing is, through clever experimentation, it was determined that what characteristics the herring gulls were paying attention to. They aren't paying... You, think, you, you can actually make eggs that are more egg-like than herring gull eggs, and they'll go after them. They like round things more than oval, even though their eggs are oval like most eggs are. So if you... And they like... Even though most of the time their eggs are all... I think it goes like... I think it goes like this. Most of the time their eggs are speckled with blue spots. But... It's the color blue, not the speckling. So if you just put a really like a blue ball a certain distance away and one of its eggs a certain distance away, they'll go after the blue ball first. So it, it, you can see there, it's this innate behavior pattern that's ha- that has a, what's called a releasing stimulus. And in this case, it's a round ball and it's blue. It's like, I must have that. It's really cool. So... I've reduced all of you followed you down to a couple PowerPoint slides. Those of you that took animal behavior with me last year or will take it next year with, well, I'll be on sabbatical, so I imagine Lori, maybe. I don't know who will teach animal behavior next year. Maybe they'll put it off for a year. I don't know. I don't care. I'm not teaching next year. Unless they don't give me my sabbatical, in which case, 
I'll burn, I'll burn down the building. Um, there's a lot of space for you there. But ethology is very cool. I know some of you guys did take it on paper with you. Okay, let's talk about the simple. Any questions about that before we talk about the simplest form of learning ever? Oh, let me give you one more cool example. You've got a, a digger wasp. And you're going to guess, well, I bet they dig. And you're right. That's why they have that name. And what they do is they live in uh, the desert, North Africa. And they'll fly around and then it gets warm. And if you've got an exoskeleton and it's warm, you want to get, because you can just dry out, like you cook. So what you want to do is you want to get somewhere cool and damp. So what they do is they start burrowing into the sand. Well, that makes some sense. And they cover themselves up by the way they dig. So they, they burrow down. And the interesting thing is they get down just to exactly the right temperature and humidity. And then they stop. So again, this looks very cognitive because it looks like they're going, okay, not quite, not quite, oh, right here. But again, through experimentation using the same sort of ideas with the uh, herring gulls, it's determined that really it's, it's not the temperature of the sand as much that they're responding to, is it is it's the consistency. And the wetter the sand is, the harder it is to move. And they've evolved a system such that they stop when it's just a little bit too hard for them to move, which is perfect because A, they can't move it, and B, it's just humid enough and just cool enough that it keeps them okay at the limit. Now, again, it looks really cognitive, but it's not. But it's not. But it's also a pretty cool example. Okay. Let's talk about the simplest form of learning that there is. And that's habituation. This is the decrease... Yes, we're finally talking about learning. Three weeks in. Um, what's, it's the decrease in the strength of a response after a repeated presentation of a stimulus. It's sort of like getting used to something, but not quite. Because like you'll get used to the sound of the projector. Now that I say it, you notice it, but... The fan's always on. You get used to that, it goes away. But I'm talking about discrete presentations of a stimulus. Discrete presentations. Right? So, the first time I do that, it startles me. Right? And then the second time, a little less, a little less. I have a pretty good clap. I'm pretty proud of that. And then eventually, you won't even notice it after a while. It'll just be something that's just there. Right? It's annoying, but it's still there. It's like, why is Dave doing that? So it's not quite like getting used to something. It certainly isn't sensory adaptation. Or fatigue. Fatigue is just basically, it's a fancy way of saying you just, you know, so tired you don't respond anymore. Sensory adaptation is really what you got with the, with the fan or what you have with the smell of your house. Right? Like, you know how your house doesn't smell but everybody else's house has a smell? That's sensory adaptation. And then you find it after you move away, and a lot of you guys maybe move away from home for school, and you go back home at Thanksgiving for the first time, and God, our house smells weird. Then you realize, someone says, no, this is how our house, you realize that's how our house smells. Right? What? Is that right? Looking at the Barney. You watching your Barney videos? Brandy Barney's. Yeah, this is a good one? Yeah. yeah. If you want to watch the videos John makes, go to his YouTube channel. YouTube.com slash John Brockback, all one way. He makes awesome videos about kids getting rounded. You should watch them, they're really amazing. 
uh, from Gogi Go Anime it is. It's like a little it's cartoons. It's it's all he does. Well, it's not all he does. And he's not memorizing things about plane crashes or writing movie treatments, um, which he does. Um, so it's not it's the same thing. It's stimulus-specific. So with my clapping, it has to be my clap. If I change it to a bell, you're suddenly going to respond again. Now, the, the, the two most common responses that are used are the orienting response. And this, you still, you'll see this. You know, uh, There's a, a sound and the animal turns its head. In fact, you probably do that too. You hear a sound, you turn your head and look at it. So we can quickly look at that. This is in rats, let's say, or cats. We would use the orienting response or the starter response. Because they're both measurable. You can watch the animal turn its head, or you can watch the animal startle. You can actually physiologically measure these things too, which is really nice. And very simple to do. So we could use startle, or we could use orient. Okay, questions so far? So this is what this is. It's, 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 again, it's not getting used to it. It's actually responding less to the stimulus. And it's very stimulus-specific. So again, if, I do, if, you're, if you're not startling to that, but I then instead play, I don't know, an air horn, you'll, you'll startle totally at, at full uh, tilt. Okay, there are certain... Thompson and Spencer in 1966 came in with these sort of rules for habituation. The first thing is it's gradual with time. So we could draw out... Better markers than that one, I think, in my bags. So much less stuff in my bag now that I cleared out all the stuff from last year. Notes from meetings... People's essays, not essays, sorry, like my honors thesis students' final copies that I've already marked and read from last year, things like that. I've thrown that stuff away. So, it's gradual with time. So what are we going to look at? This is a much better marker. Okay, so these are going to be trials. That's the discrete, discrete presentation of the stimulus. Right? That's there. And here we're going to have response. Now, the, the strange thing here, that says response. That's the first strange thing. Uh, the second strange thing is that the more responding, the less learning. Right? Because the learning is that you learn not to respond. So at first you respond a great deal, and then you respond less, and then you respond uh, less... And I'm going to try to draw this realistically. Less, and less, and less. Oh, something like this. Okay. Except it'll be smoother. Less and less responding. It's gradual with time. It doesn't happen with one trial. You don't get responding. You don't get complete habituation with just one trial. Don't you have to spin your hat like that? Okay. Because okay. you only do that and you lose it. That's a great 
Ты So it's gradual with time. If you withhold the stimulus, responses will reoccur. So let's let's just make this a little prettier, okay? So first we get some a lot of responding will be less and less and less and less and less. And eventually you stop when you get zero. Zero responding, okay? Now we're going to withhold the stimulus. In other words, maybe we'll take the animal out of the situation and put it back in its home cage or whatever, and then we'll come back the next day. We'll start getting responding again. But you'll get savings, just like Eppinghouse thing. The learning's going to be quicker, and you actually start with a little less responding than you used to. So what we have here... Savings. Also, the slope of this curve. I tried to draw it since the slope of this curve was more severe than this one. So it learned to not respond at all again more quickly. Okay? So it's, the savings is both in the where it starts and I should draw a line then to the slope because the slope should be more severe. Because it's, it's, it's relearned not to respond a lot more quickly than it did the first time. Does that make sense? Right? It's the same thing that happens with a list of words. You're awesome. The more intense the stimulus, the quicker the learning. Which is also true. Doesn't it sound like one of Thomas Brown's principles, right? The more the livelier the, 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 the stimulus, the more likely you are to learn it. That's that's I was doing Brown because he's Scottish. Huh. It's, this all actually sounds a lot like Brown, doesn't it? It's really pretty impressive. Also true with uh, every other type of learning. Now, obviously we can take this to an extreme if the sound is so loud that the animal's eardrums bleed. Well, I guess the next time it won't hear anything and it won't respond, so maybe it would still work. Um, get less orienting response. <laughs> but that wouldn't be the reason. So you can take this to the extreme. It's, don't worry. I'm not talking about being stupid. I'm not, not something so, so bright that it's blinding. Not something so loud that it's deafening. Because <laughs> you know, um, it works with um, uh, aplesia. Right? Little flatworms. Uh, that are like less than a millimeter long. Uh, this works with sea slugs, which so little flatworms have 302 neurons, and we know the whole genome. We know the whole um, neural network. It's simple. It's 302 neurons. Um, sea slugs about 2,000 neurons, right? So, but the intensity is the same thing. You squirt squirt water at them, and they withdraw their gill. But if you open the garden hose at them, <laughs> it's probably just going to kill them. So that's you know, it's obvious that it's got to be within reason here. But all things being equal, the brighter the, the light, the louder the sound, the more intense the stimulus, the quicker the learning happens. Okay. You can get what's called overlearning. What's overlearning? Overlearning is what happens when you've learned something to, this is anything, when you've learned it literally to per- perfection, but you keep learning. You keep practicing anyway. I have a feeling 
Many of you know that NHL training camps are open right now in the exhibition season. They're cutting guys. They're practicing every day. I think most of your NHL hockey players know how to skate. I'm just saying, I think that's a prerequisite for playing in the National Hockey League. But they practice. They do skating drills. Why? Is it just some sort of form of rite of passage? Well, no. Obviously, there's got to be a reason for it. Why is it you think that soldiers train so damn much? I think they all know how to shoot their guns. I think that happens probably in a couple of weeks. That You get pretty okay at it, and they go, okay, you're good. Why do airline pilots train and train and train and train in simulators? Right? John? Yeah. Why do airline pilots train so much in simulators? I don't know. I thought you might know that one. While you're watching Mayday. Right? Well, they train because... Because... I don't know. Do you have an idea? They want to make sure that they're... Make sure they remember everything, right? They remember everything. Yeah. To control the plane. Yeah. Exactly. What's your favorite plane crash? American Airlines Flight 191 and Scandinavian Airlines Flight 686. What happened with 686? It collided with a Cessna. Oh, right. What was that? Um, Milan Lenade. Where's that? I don't know what that is. Italy. Oh, okay. Who was flying? Do you know the pilot's name? I don't know. No, you don't know that? Okay. It's one of his obsessions. Why do airline pilots do that? Well, there's a very good reason, because when you're under a lot of pressure, you want to make sure that you can still perform. Why do professional athletes do it? Same reason. <coughs> they're still learning. They, they probably still are learning. They just can't show us. Cindy Crosby can't be any better uh, hockey player. Probably can't be. It's hard to be better than the best in the world. You just can't be. It's hard for... And don't give me that Alexander Ovechkin crap. So... Look, look at their plus minus, their Corsi and Fenwick scores. I'm just saying. Um, and look at how many gold medals Alexander Ovechkin has. Oh, how many is that? Oh, I think it's nine. Um, <laughs> so you can. You can keep learning. A bit, uh, a you, you might sort of think theoretically, if this curve keeps going, what's happening? Well, it can't respond any less than not responding. Can it? It can't show you that it's learning. Because it can't respond any less than just not responding. But it's still learning. That's the whole learning versus performance dichotomy you might have heard about before. Right? And sometimes animals learn things and can't show you or don't show you. Right? John, as you know, has autism and he knows it too. We tell you. Uh, and we didn't know that he could speak. We had no idea he could speak. He said the odd word, but he never spoke in sentences, and then one day, we were driving by McDonald's. John, you remember the, what, do you, what did you used to say when you wanted something? Ba-ba. Yeah. It's the And of course, we get it for him, which was a bad idea. And we ran by McDonald's, and he did that, and I turned around and I said, if you tell me what you want, we'll go right now. And he said, I want to go to McDonald's. And me and Maddie and Isabel all started crying. Isabel did a U-turn, and he went to McDonald's and said, what would you like? You can have anything you want. He did the same thing with reading. He never had showed us that he could read. And then one day at school, he apparently walked, grabbed his uh, EA and just read all the kids' names that were hanging up in, 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 in the kindergarten. Something he'd never done before. 
He clearly had learned it. He didn't just come up with it like, oh, I can read. That's neat. <laughs> or, oh, I think I'll start speaking. Right? And then he, I had nothing to say before that. Then there was McDonald's involved. So, I mean, it's the same kind of idea. Right? The animal here is still learning, but it's not performing. Because in this case, it cannot. I don't know what the deal was with him. I think he was just stubborn or being a jerk. But it's still learning. So what you're getting here is habituation below zero. Which I think sounds like a name of an 80s new wave band. You know, maybe a synth pop kind of thing going a little clock of seagulls meets Fears for Fears. But how would you know this is happening? Any ideas? How would you show that you were getting habituation below zero? Experimenting. What do you think? Any ideas? How would you make that happen? It's actually a really simple experiment, and when I tell you, if you can't figure it out yet, you're going to kick yourself and go, oh, of course. Any thoughts? Any ideas? No. You did it. The difference is there in the third year. It's like one, two, three lanes in a suburb. Oh, that was a good one, eh? Yeah. Wasn't that the one where the guy didn't know, he didn't pay attention to the... uh, I thought he was running out of fuel, right? Captain Mibu. Okay, so you didn't know his name. Okay. That's right. Like, was it Portland, Oregon? What'd you say? Was it Portland, Oregon? Is that the name? Yeah. Yeah, I thought so. I've watched all these Mayday episodes with him, too. It's a very compelling show, actually. Except when the people die, which he loves, by the way. But I, a 13 year old boy, wants to see explosions. I just want to see them rescue people. Okay. This is neat. How do we do this? We have two groups. One group where we stop them right here. Okay, so this would be group one. We stop them there. Group two, we keep going. Okay? We then compare the two groups when we put them back, and we know that when we take them back in, and we put them back into the, the, the experimental situation, we're going to get responding again. So we take our two groups. So let's see, I said group one was the group there, so they go like this. And group two is like this. We know they must have learned something else because they have less responding in group one. It's pretty clever, isn't it? It's exceedingly clever. The best experiments are clever and easy to understand, my favorite kind. So this group's had habituation below zero, this group hasn't. They've overlearned something. You've overlearned how to read. Right? You can't get any you can't show us you're any better at it, really. You can't. You can read. You've overlearned how to do all kinds of things. Ride a bike, drive a car, fly a plane. There is stimulus generalization. So what are we going to use? We're going to use uh, let's say a tone. A tone of, uh, let's go with 440 hertz. Is that a, is that a C or an A? No musicians? A. It's an A. And we'll then, like, beep, 
I don't think that was an A. Doesn't matter, does it? So that's what we're using. And we're going to do habituation. Okay. So we're going to get no responding here. And then we got so 450 and 460 here. And 430. <laughs> 420 here. Now, what we're going to get, no responding at 440, because this is what we've trained him up at. Let's see if I can cross. Okay. If you turn your head upside down, which I don't encourage you to do, which you get as a normal distribution around 440, you get stimulus generalizations. So they do respond more and more, the less similar this is. These stimuli, that's supposed to be a symmetrical distribution. I know it's not that pretty. Uh, you get the, 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 the further away this is from the original stimulus, the more responding you're going to get. In other words, the less generalization. Oh, I didn't put that up there. Sorry. Whoops. What happened there? Okay. Hmm. I guess there's a button I can push that blanks it. I didn't know that. Oh, you know what? I it's the B. It is. Well, I've learned something. B for blank. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. That is a C slug. They aren't that big. They're much smaller than that, happily. This, these animals were studied uh, by Eric Kandel. That's him in 78 uh, when he wins the Nobel Prize for doing this work. So he wants a Nobel Prize for figuring out how... Uh, Habituation works in aplesia, which is a kind of sea slope. So it's the gill withdrawal reflex. Okay. So basically, poking an aplesia, and it withdraws its gill. Cheryl Wade Elder always says that sounds dirty or poking aplesia. Just. See, Cheryl makes jokes. You don't think she does, do you? Kind of funny. I've always really liked that. That's why I use that title. Give her always give her credit. The, 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 the setup. This is an animal with two thousand freaking neurons. The setup is a sensory neuron goes to a motor neuron. Their gill is really um, sensitive and really really. Uh, it can be damaged easily. So they have a, a, a reflex that withdraws it very quickly because they don't want to get hurt. That's where they breathe out of, right? So it, it's pretty amazing because after you poke them a few times and they learn that they're not, they're not going after their gill, they stop withdrawing their gill. You actually get a decrease in the calcium current across... How many people have taken brain behavior? I know a few of you have it. Okay. The calcium current uh, is... <clears throat> this is how the uh, a synapse detects let's just say it, let's put it this way to not get too far into this 
It's how it, uh, a neuron detects if it should fire or not. I'll just say that. That's all I'm going to say. Um, to get more complicated, take brain behavior. When an action potential reaches the axon hillock, it detects using um, voltage sensitive calcium channels uh, if, if there's been a change in the charge across the membrane, and if there's enough of a change detected by those voltage sensitive calcium char uh, channels, then the neuron fires. Okay? There's actually a decrease in this. In other words, it, at the neuronal level, it's harder for the neuron to fire. That's what makes this neat. So in other words, we actually are making it harder. We're going to get less transmitter, less neurotransmitter released into the synapse. We're going to get less neurotransmitter released into the synapse. And you might say, well, that's really great, Dave. That's in um, sea slugs. It's also true in cats. It's true in sea slugs and cats. I'm going to go to the limb and say it works that way in us. Because what's the common ancestor of the sea slug and the cat? Something a long time ago that probably wasn't even an animal. Or some maybe single-celled animal. It's pretty amazing. So, Canada, as I said, won a Nobel Prize for this work. So that's, that's, that's pretty amazing. Um... Habituation shows up in every single animal species that's ever been tested, and it works the same way in every single animal species that's ever been tested. Vertebrates and invertebrates. Now, classic conditioning shows up in every single animal species that's ever been tested, too, including things with 302 neurons. The difference is it works somewhat differently in invertebrates than it does in vertebrates. There are subtle differences in how it works in those two. Those differences don't show up in habituation. Habituation works like this in you guys, and it works in me, and it works like that in a 302-neuron flatworm, and a 2,000-neuron sea slug, and a cat, and a rat, and a platypus. I, I'm guessing. I don't know if any platypus work. But it would be odd if they were the only one there. But they're pretty weird. Duck-billed, poison Spines, just weird all around, really, platypuses. So the thing is, this is now thought of as the universal rule of learning paradigm. And I mean, I used an example, I talked about overlearning, I talked about NHL hockey players, I talked about you knowing how to read. This stimulus generalization thing shows up in every single kind of learning. There are things about habituation that are the same as every other kind of learning. I'm not saying that all learning is habituation or something, that would be crazy. But what I'm saying is that there are general rules of learning we can talk about. Things like overlearning, things like savings, things like stimulus generalizing. So because of this, it's thought of as the universal learning paradigm. So what we can do now, you couldn't take... It's a simple procedure, right? Very simple kind of learning. So you're, you couldn't take like... Uh, 
want to be altering the genome of a bunch of people to, to look at their learning. Probably a, you know, people wouldn't like that very much. What with the ethics and all, but b would be a bit of an issue with even knowing what the hell you were doing. Here we've got an animal, the, 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 the flatworm, the little nematode. We know what the genome is. We know what all the genes do. So why not alter some of those genes and see if we can improve learning? And then you can find genes that are going to be homologous in the flatworm to the human or to the rat. You can see that gene is important in learning and memory. And that's what's going on right now. Just like using those little flatworms, people look at aging. There are single genes that if you change them a little bit, the, the, the worm lives five times longer. And we have the same damn gene. Right? So oftentimes when people find things out about aplesia or about uh, C. elegans, the, the, the nematode, um, that probably does apply at some, point, some level to, to vertebrates. And we can look at the genetic basis of stuff, the protein expression, all this kind of really cool stuff that we really can't easily do in non uh, in other animals, basically, in, in, in rats or, or monkeys or people. All right. Any questions about this stuff? Okay. Well, I guess that's just about it then. So we'll uh, you know, get a little down a little early, but we'll pack this one up for today, and we'll continue talking about this stuff next time. Thanks, guys.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.